Welcome to The Road to Rural Prosperity, featuring stories about rural Oklahoma and rural America. Guiding us on the journey today is our host, Ron Hayes. Thank you, Billy, and welcome to another edition of The Road to Rural Prosperity. Ron Hayes with you today, and we are delighted to have along with us the Honorable Congressman from the 3rd District of the State of Oklahoma, Congressman Frank Lucas, who's been in the U.S. House of Representatives since he was elected in a special election back in 1994 to fill the seat that was vacated by Democrat Glenn English, who went on to serve as the Executive Director of the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. Over the years, the district number has changed a few times. Currently, it's the third congressional district that he represents, almost the northwestern half of the state of Oklahoma, 32 counties. It's one of the largest agricultural regions of any single congressional district in the nation. Congressman Frank Lucas served as chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, including during the time of the development of the 2014 Farm Law. Since that time, he did take a leave of absence from the Agriculture Committee, currently serving as the ranking member of the House Science and Technology Committee. We talked with the congressman today about all the things going on with the pandemic that is attacking our country and really the entire world. He gives us his perspective from his ranch in Roger Mills County, Oklahoma, in the westernmost parts of our state. Today's edition of the Road to Rural Prosperity being sponsored by the Oklahoma Public School Resource Center. They envision a quality public education for every child in Oklahoma. You can go to their website, www.opsrc.net, and find a wide variety of COVID-19 resources when it comes to education in our state. Stick around. Congressman Frank Lucas joins us in just a few moments on today's Road to Rural Prosperity after these messages. Headquartered in Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma Public School Resource Center envisions a quality public education for every child in Oklahoma, and their mission is to drive transformation and increased academic achievement within Oklahoma's public education system. The Resource Center is a nonprofit organization that provides essential resources, professional development, and technical assistance to the state's public schools. They advocate for high-quality instruction for all Oklahoma students and support increasing classroom innovation to provide them a challenging, globally competitive education. With communities from border to border, Bank First lenders understand the needs of today's agricultural market. Whether you need to purchase land, equipment, or livestock, or maybe need an operating line of credit, call on Bank First. They are a certified lender with the Farm Service Agency and can help with specialized financing when other banks can't. Bank First is proud to serve the needs of the Sooner State's agricultural market. Bank First is loyal to Oklahoma and you. Member FDIC, loan subject to approved credit. Welcome back to another edition of the Road to Rural Prosperity. Today we're on the long line and we're talking with uh, a resident from uh, from Roger Mills County, Oklahoma, our Honorable Congressman, uh, 3rd District Congressman Frank Lucas, former Chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, and of course uh, uh, ranking member right now on the Science Committee in the House of Representatives. But as you mentioned to me, Congressman, as we started, uh, right now you're like all of us, you're kind of uh, Homebound. Absolutely, Ron. Uh, Congress broke from regular session three weeks ago uh, after we'd passed a couple of bills to address 
the early stages of the coronavirus outbreak. We've since then, by voice vote, passed a third package involving $2 trillion. But just like everybody else, uh, I'm social distancing at home. Linda Lucas has me fully instructed so that when I'm not on the phone, doing conference calls with my colleagues or with uh, various entities around the district or back east in D.C., when I'm not talking to staff and trying to work through problems and challenges we face together, it's calving season here in Linda's program, so uh, we're engaged in that. And no matter how difficult the outside world is, no matter how challenging things are, there's still something to be said when you've got one of those brand-new 60-pound calves looking in the eye and want to know if you're the mother before you spin it around and point it in the right direction. It just restores your faith in the human, the, the entire world. I guess that is one way to uh, maybe let off a little bit of stress. Yes, exactly. Uh, that said, the circumstances we find ourselves in, uh, who would have ever guessed that we would, for, the, for months now, be dealing with a challenge that came out of Wuhan, China, a virus that appears to have gone from one animal species to another, and then jumped to humans that have circled literally the globe, uh, the most intense pandemic certainly of my lifetime, perhaps the most intense pandemic since the Spanish flu of 1918. And when I was a young man, just starting out farming, I listened to my grandparents and I listened to my aunts and uncles who were young men and women in 1918 and 1919 and early 1920 discuss the flu and how it brought North Roger Mills County to a complete halt for literally three weeks and how that influenza took the youngest and healthiest of the community, uh, young men and women and virtually every pregnant woman and children slaughtered them. And perhaps at the time I didn't truly appreciate what I was listening to, but now watching the mounting number of cases in Oklahoma and around the world, watching the mounting number of deaths in Oklahoma and around the world, I have a great deal of respect for my elders and what they went through with dramatically simpler health care and dramatically fewer options to deal with the challenges uh, almost a century ago. But that said, where are we now? The best response, as any good cattleman knows, when you have a virus, when you have a disease outbreak in your herd, is you isolate the victims. If there's an ability to vaccinate, you vaccinate everybody. You remove the contagion exposed from your herd, and you try and get over as fast as you can by separation. Uh, essentially, that's what we're looking at right now in this situation. It may be from my seat on the science committee, it may be a year, it may be a year and a half before we have a vaccine to the American safety model to address this, but we will have a vaccine. Uh, understand that there are countries, including China, who don't necessarily use the same kind of standards we do who will help accelerate this process because they'll take a product that might work and they'll do mass inoculations to see what happens. We're more cautious than that. But even before the vaccine, the concepts that have been developed in dealing with Ebola in Africa, taking uh, people who have had the disease, the virus, survive, identifying the antibodies that their systems produce to fight it off, and then isolating and mass producing those, and in effect giving antibody shots, a quicker way to address what ultimately the vaccines will do. I'm still hopeful that that's possible later this summer or in the early fall. 
But until we get to that point, social distancing, uh, proper sanitation, being careful, being cautious. I know it's frustrating to be home all the time. This is all about trying to protect those in our society who are the most vulnerable. Clearly, from the CDC briefings that I've been to, both in person uh, when we were still in session and now in those conference call sessions, clearly of the people who will ultimately get this uh, virus be exposed, 80% will get over it just fine. Maybe 25% will never even know they've had the virus. But 80% will get over it just fine. It's that other 20% who are going to have to have hospital stays and major medical uh, resources available to them. And of that 20%, perhaps somewhere from, as the head of the CDC has said, somewhere between a half a percent and 2% just won't, uh, they won't make it. So those of us who are not exposed, those of us who will be exposed yet get over it, it's important we practice social distancing to protect that other 20% so that we won't have this spike and an overload in our healthcare system and also to protect that perhaps as much as 2% who through age or pre-existing health conditions, think of cancer patients, think of autoimmune issues, think of a variety of things, they won't survive if they get it. So the rest of us have to be careful to help protect them. Now, that said, how are we in Congress responding, not just advising people to stay six feet away from each other and stay home when they can and to cover their faces and all those kind of things? How are we responding? We so far have passed uh, basically three packages to try and keep the economy going because this virus was not a farmer rancher's fault. It's not someone's fault working at the grocery store or in a factory line somewhere. We have to enable them to survive this both physically, but also economically, we have to keep the country going. The first two packages were money, uh, primarily to address short-term nutrition needs, to try and address short-term the immediate needs uh, for the national vaccine supplies and moving healthcare resources around. Phase three, as the national media likes to refer to it, is the $2 trillion bill that was passed, signed into law by the president. And by the way, $2 trillion is an incredible amount of money. You know, Congressman, you know, when you think about that $2 trillion amount, could you have ever imagined when you went to Washington for the first time that you would be dealing with a single bill worth $2 trillion? Never wrong. The closest thing to this I've seen was after 9-11, the attack on the Pentagon, New York City, after those good citizens put that plane uh, down in Pennsylvania to protect people. We voted $40 billion in one bill to address the immediate needs. I thought $40 billion was the biggest bill I would ever vote for on a, on a single, single item. And now we've addressed the $2 trillion mark. But that shows, Ron, the magnitude of what's happening to the economy. As we maintain this social distancing, as the economy grinds to a halt, as the virus burns its way through our society, people have to be able to buy their groceries. They have to be able to pay their rent. They have to be able to pay, make their basic payments and get on with life. And that's where this bill is so unique in so many ways, whether it's the Paycheck Protection Program, 
we're literally we appropriated three hundred and fifty billion dollars, and it now appears as you and I speak, potentially there may be another two hundred and fifty billion put into the account by congressional action in the next few days. But three hundred and fifty billion dollars in order to give the Small Business Administration the ability to make loans to individuals so they can make the payroll, pay their rent, pay their utilities, basically hold their businesses together until we come out of the other side of this, hopefully in a few months, out of the other side of this, and we can go back to work. We cannot let agriculture and Main Street business manufacturing, we cannot let the industrial base of this country collapse because putting that back together, Ron, would be just almost beyond imagination. Now, Congressman, along those lines, uh, I know you probably have had at least some conversations already with uh, with constituents. What what are you hearing from your district about this particular this you know specifically this plan? Are they having success in in getting their applications in? My Main Street business folks are turning to their bankers, and their bankers are trying to get uh, signed up for the program to be able to do the loan applications process and send them straight to uh, SBA. Some of my banks have been fortunate and worked really hard, and they're in. They're processing loans. Uh, they're moving along. There's still thousands, I would suspect, at this point of banks nationwide that have not cleared all the hurdles to get in, and we're working with them, and they're working with their banking associations to get in. But the reason this program is so important is this $350 billion, you get the loan through your bank that's guaranteed by SBA. If you spend the money on rent, employee salaries, utilities, the things that are spelled out, then the loan will be forgiven. If you spend the money as the terms specify, the loan will be forgiven. It's not a grant, but it's a loan that will be forgiven as long as you spend your money on your people and keeping your business going. I have frustration among my bankers because not all of my local banks were authorized Small Business Administration, SBA, uh, loan generators to start with. They're overcoming that. There's frustration. That's why this potential $250 billion more dollars being put into the fund, plus it up to $600 billion is so important, Ron, that will give more money so there'll be more money and more time for folks to work their way through these hurdles. But this is critically important. And along with the PPP, as they call it, the Paycheck Protection Program, there's also uh, money in there that uh, helps back up the state's unemployment programs so that if your business that you work at fails, they can't hire you anymore. For whatever reason, they can't uh, participate in PPP. You have eight weeks of this state unemployment rate plus $600 to get you through hopefully what will be a narrow window in this pandemic. Now, I know there's lots of discussion about is that the appropriate amount of money? Is that too much money? Is that not enough money? Bottom line is this. If those folks are able to make their payments, that is, pay their rent, buy their groceries, pay their utilities, pay their car payments, continue to do the things they need to do, then we can tread water economically through the summer so that when the pandemic passes and the economy takes off again, they will have their head above water and be able to go back to work. It also matters if you're at the grocery store selling them food, if you've got the, if you're, you've loaned them the money to make a car payment, if you're 
the person collecting the money for the water bill or the electric bill or whatever, it is important we do this, again, to hold the economy together. It's a massive amount of money. It's something never done before, but it's necessary. And there's also in there $100 billion for hospitals across the country to meet the needs. Now, those rules and regs are still being worked out, and we're going through some issues in our office. For instance, many of the hospitals in the 3rd District are either city, municipal-owned, or county-owned. Many of them are set up in a trust kind of a legal entity. Initially, there was some question about whether they as trust could qualify for the Paycheck Protection Program and perhaps some of these other benefits, like the $100 billion, to healthcare. We're working our way through that. It's not. It's just going to be an ongoing process. But the bottom line, Ron, is this is the most amazing effort to hold the country together as we work our way through that. It's probably worth noting, though, from the perspective of agriculture. I mean, what uh, what can we expect there? What uh, should people be prepared for? Congressman, let, let, let's talk about agriculture. Uh, we're, we are talking today with Oklahoma Congressman Frank Lucas on the road to real prosperity. And we'll be back to talk about the agricultural aspects of the CARES Act here in just a few moments. Headquartered in Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma Public School Resource Center envisions a quality public education for every child in Oklahoma, and their mission is to drive transformation and increased academic achievement within Oklahoma's public education system. The Resource Center is a nonprofit organization that provides essential resources, professional development, and technical assistance to the state's public schools. They advocate for high-quality instruction for all Oklahoma students and support increasing classroom innovation to provide them a challenging, globally competitive education. The Petroleum Alliance represents every segment of the oil and natural gas industry, speaking with one voice when advocating for the interest of its members, landowner partners, and employees. Our mission is to enhance Oklahoma's economy and every segment of the energy industry. Welcome back to the Road to Rural Prosperity. I'm Ron Hayes. We've got Congressman Frank Lucas today. Congressman, uh, you've been really busy. Before we get into the ag portion of the CARES Act, how exactly uh, is your office function? Obviously, you've got uh, offices in the district. You've got your D.C. office. Uh, you got anybody in the offices or, all, or, is, or is everybody uh, doing it on a social distance basis? Social distance basis, Ron. Before, a couple days before, basically, the East Coast shut down, when it appeared that we were headed in this direction, I gave my uh, staffers in the nation's capital the option they could stay if they wanted, but I couldn't visualize it being either practical from a health perspective for them individually or it just didn't matter because no one would be in their offices in the capital area. So basically, I gave them the opportunity. Almost all of my uh, district staff, all of my D.C., uh, personal staff people are from Oklahoma. I, basically, my message to them was, if you want to go home, go home. Your workstation is now transferred from D.C. to Yukon. We'll operate uh, by teleconference out of that. Uh, we'll still, You'll still be responsible from 8 to 5 every day. We'll have conference calls to talk to each other every day. We're going to have a rotating process of taking the phone calls that come both to the district office and to the D.C. office. No constituent will be left unresponded to. But essentially, I said, go home with your laptop, 
your iPhone, and we're all going to ride this out together, taking care of the folks as we do it. And that's what we're doing now. All righty. Let, let, let's talk about the uh, agricultural uh, aspects of the CARES Act. Uh, there's a couple of pots of money that I know that uh, the agricultural community very interested in, including some monies that were really dedicated to the beef cattle industry and to specialty crops. Absolutely, Ron. First, let's mention that there's some things like $55 million for the plant and animal and plant health inspection service. There's $33 million for the food safety inspection service. There's $45 million in it for the agriculture marketing service. So many of these programs are partially funded by user fees. And with the disruption, the activities not taking place in a normal way, we needed to put cash in to make sure those fundamental inspection services are continued. So that's addressed through the 31st day of 30th day of September, I should say. The key elements, I think, to most of my cohorts, and by the way, there's $3 million in there for the Farm Service Agency to help pay salaries and expenses, to bring on uh, temporary and, and pay people overtime, those kind of things. Uh, I think any everyone knows that those good folks at FSA, NNRCS, are taking care of us every day. It's just you need to give them a call. Don't go knock on the door. Give them a call. And they'll work through things with you in the spirit of protecting everybody's health. So that's an important $3 million. There's $14 billion uh, put in to replenish the Commodity Credit Corporation. I personally thought we should have put in 22, but that's what we wound up with was $14 billion. That's important money to have in that fund because, as our listeners know, there are a variety of things that the Secretary of Agriculture uses CCC money for, and it's important that the cash be in that count. The fund that's most uh, been most discussed since the passage of the legislation, of course, is the $9.5 billion to go into the basically a coronavirus response. I, at this moment, cannot say with certainty how Secretary Purdue and the department intends to distribute that. There have been a number of letters from various of my colleagues in different regions of the country uh, going to the secretary that I've seen copies of. I would suspect in the spirit of moving the money quickly out, they probably need to pick up a disaster program from the past somewhere so they have the flesh of the details and rules to go with. Some would argue they should use the uh, MFP program, the money, the, the rules that were created to address uh, the trade embargoes, those payments in recent years. I'm not sure yet, Ron, how ultimately that's going to come out. Uh, the folks in the Midwest uh, in corn country uh, were not generally happy with how the, the funds were allocated to address the effects of the embargo of the trade wars. We'll see. I have a lot of faith in Secretary Purdue, but he does have $9.5 billion, and many of us, that's the key area that concerns. Now, that said, let's focus for just a moment on the beef equation. And I've not looked at the afternoon futures quote uh, as we speak, but I know in the last 30 days that literally we've gone from a, well, basically a one-third drop in the futures markets on live cattle contracts. I watch my sale rings very closely. I've watched what cash prices have done. I know that uh, my neighbors are very aware of the run on the grocery stores and how empty the meat coolers are, the meat uh, cases are you know in big and small uh, retail establishments there seems to be a disconnect 
between live cattle prices, for instance, and box beef, the retail cuts in the store. Some of that uh, gyration brought on by the futures market is a reflection, in all fairness, of where many of my constituents who should have been using the futures market to hedge their beef cattle were not. And when it all started to fall apart, they rushed in to try and uh, protect themselves. And when you've got 10,000 people selling a contract and no one buying, it has a pretty dramatic effect on price. There's also an issue here where as the investor community that not only puts money in the stock market but also has put money in the futures market, I tend to refer to them as the speculative side. As they went to cash on everything, we saw the drop, dramatic drop in the stock market and the gyrations that have gone there. We've seen the dramatic drop in the continued gyrations in the futures market. So that's part of a problem. And then there's a third element here. Uh, in the last 48 hours, reports of uh, some corona positives being in perhaps some of management uh, in beef packing facility and a beef packing facility in Pennsylvania, perhaps some positive reports in a pork facility in Iowa, how we keep the processors working and the trucking industry moving. Those are our next real challenges. Every conference call I participated in for at least five weeks now, maybe six, my number one question is, are the ag processors still able to function? Is transportation still moving? Are we getting product from, from the farm, in effect, to the grocery store? Up until this point, that answer has been yes. Now, I believe that our processor friends have a particularly big responsibility now to take care of their workers. Those should be the most sanitary facilities in the world to work at. And making sure that when people come to work, they take their temperature, making sure they're healthy, making sure that if there's any sign of problems, they're going home or not coming to work. We've got to protect our processing capacity right now keep that product moving in. But once all this is over with, Ron, just like the gyrations we saw after the packing plant fire in western Kansas in 2018, the disconnect between live prices and retail price, I think once this is done, we have to address what's going on now in this situation. I know the Secretary has an investigation going on in the 2018 circumstances. Many of us have advocated that it, this needs to be added to that. We're going to learn lessons, and there are going to be actions taken. I would just simply say this. There's a fine line between enlightened self-interest and greed and stupidity. I hope my friends in the processing industry have been very careful in how what they've done because they're going to get to defend it. Congressman, let, let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, uh, we're very concerned about just, you know, surviving. You've got uh, a lot of rural constituents that are part of your your, your district, uh, very, very, uh, probably very representative of a lot of rural America. The the challenges of rural, living in rural America through all of this, through this pandemic, uh, I think really boils down in a lot of cases, do you have broadband or not? And that's something we've been working on for quite a while. That's absolutely right, Ron. And where I live here, I have access to broadband. I wouldn't describe it as the kind of broadband you would have in Oklahoma City or Tulsa or even some of my regional communities. And it is clear that with everyone at home, working at home, with kids at home trying to do schoolwork, with the increased social interaction by phone and by video link and by text message and by email, 
the system is under great pressure. Things have slowed down dramatically. I can see that. I'm just as dependent as my neighbors are in that regard. So, yes, how do we address that? The challenge in the past has been that in the urban areas where you have so many customers per mile or so many hundreds or thousands of customers per mile, that's not been as much of a challenge as one would expect. In the suburban areas, there's been a tendency amongst a lot of the telecommunication industry when they've secured funds that were supposed to help uh, drive broadband, enhanced broadband accessibility in the rural areas, there's been a tendency to want to try to deploy that as close to the urban areas as they can to generate a higher rate of return, which then leaves all of us out in the true countryside where we are right now. That has to be addressed in the future because not just this kind of a pandemic national emergency, but our children and our grandchildren and the businesses that they run, the world that they are creating, expect the quality of communication, the quality of data transmission to be the highest. And they will not stay in a place like Roger Mills County if they can't have that level of access. And if we're not careful, we'll lose those people, the, the next generation, the younger generation to the metropolitan areas because they're mobile. They'll go to where the tools are that makes their life better and the quality of their work more efficient. How to get that money in the key places is the real challenge. I guess what uh, clearly this pandemic has shown us uh, the crucial nature of that, right? Absolutely, Ron. It's demonstrated to us how important the communications networks are. It's also demonstrated, and I've and I made this statement repeatedly, our doctors, our nurses, our EMTs, our technicians, our firemen, our policemen and women all need our greatest respect and endearing appreciation. But don't forget those folks who drive the trucks who move the food and the fuel up and down the road, who deliver the boxes, just as we should never forget those folks who work in the warehouses or the processing plants or, in agriculture's perspective, the ag processing plants and those feedlots, no matter what species they are. They keep us fed. They keep us going. Have the greatest respect for a truck driver in particular. How do you how do you see this uh, all kind of winding down? In other words, what is you know I know the administration starting to think a little bit more uh, out loud about this, but how do we successfully turn the uh, um, engine of America back on? The virus continues to work its way through our society and the world, and the CDC director, Mister Redfield, said me comments the other day that like the Spanish flu of 1918 that circled the globe three times. So this will continue to circle the globe. It's probably going to be with us from now on. So we have to develop that vaccine program. And every year, in addition to the slightly changed flu vaccine, you'll get a slightly different COVID-19 vaccine. That'll just be a part of life. But we have to be able, whether it's through treatments, We have to be able to get this process under control as quick as we can. There will be a substantial portion of our society, maybe a quarter, who will have it and never even know it. There will be that 80% of society who will have it and move on. 
We have to have antibody tests so we can identify who's had it, who's gotten over it. They have to go to work, Ron, while we isolate the elderly, the unfirm, those who've not been exposed until we can address the antibody treatments or vaccines. But I suspect there's a dramatically larger portion of society than we realize who fall in that 25% category. And when we're able to identify them, hopefully soon, they've got to go back to work. All righty. So end of the day, as far as you, your, your role as a congressman, the, the role of Congress working with the administration, what's out there that uh, you can do to help make this thing uh, have a, a hopefully a fairly happy ending? Make sure that the programs that we passed work, whether it's USDA allocating out resources to help production ag survive or working with the Small Business Administration or the Department of Treasury or the FDIC to make sure the banks can get in and utilize the programs and make them available to the constituents. And on top of that, where there are additional needs for resources as we work our way through these challenging weeks and perhaps months where we need to plus up, as I think we will in the Paycheck Protection Program, that we plus those up. It's not my neighbor's fault that this pox has come to them. It's not their fault that their jobs are temporarily going away. It's not their fault they still have children to feed, bills to pay, rent to pay, that they still have to get on with life. But it's my responsibility to make sure they have the tools to survive this. And once this is over, we'll do everything we can through the science committee, through the research programs at USDA, to make sure we don't go through this again. Thank you, Congressman. Congressman Frank Lucas of the 3rd District of Oklahoma talking with us today here on the Road to Rural Prosperity. I'm Ron Hayes. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us for today's Road to Rural Prosperity podcast. You can join the conversation about how rural Oklahoma can prosper by looking for us on Facebook. And you can find our growing number of conversations on our website, RuralProsperityOK.com. The Road to Rural Prosperity podcast series is a production of the Radio Oklahoma Ag Network and OklahomaFarmReport.com. Proud to be a part of the family of the funk companies.